participants in certain ventures. What I so respect about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is that he didn't just try to emphasize the benefits and then keep you in the dark as to what might possibly happen along the way. Now, he wasn't shy about trumping the joys of following Jesus. Matter of fact, as we've looked at our breakthrough sermon series the past several weeks and have mined the jewels out of John chapter 15, it sort of whets your appetite to walk with Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, he tells you that you can remain in his love. He tells you that you can bear much fruit. He tells us that the fullness, not of our joy, but of his joy, can be in us. Last week, we looked at being a friend of God. We looked at being an insider with Christ where he pours out his heart to us. If you were to stop right there around verse 17 that we've come so far, there'd be a sign-up sheet a mile long for those who want to sign up to follow Jesus. But he wasn't finished telling the whole story. There is what the world might consider a downside. We know it's simply part of the wondrous journey of being a Christ follower, but he now comes clean and shoots straight about the challenges of following him, of living for the Lord. And he really builds it around a word that no one exactly likes in our culture. It's the word hate. And in verses 18 through 25, he uses the word hate some seven times. I don't know about you, but as a kid, I was taught to not hate. Don't try to eliminate the word hate as much as you can from your vocabulary unless you're hating something that you truly should righteously hate. But here Jesus tells us that we will experience that awful word hate sometimes by merely being his follower. So today, as we look at these powerful verses, we're going to leave this room with a better understanding of hate and how we can respond to it by the grace of God. I'm going to, first of all, read verses 18 and 19 as we look at John chapter 15, where we find these words. It says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own, as it is. You do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Now, there's a sense where we're asking the question, where did this come from? I mean, this is the book of this beloved disciple, the Apostle John. And you you see admonitions of love and promises of peace and joy. But the disciples have already seen a little bit about what it's like to be with an ostracizing person like Jesus. There were times when they were the most popular guys in the country. They're walking around with this guy that can do miracles, and it's like, wow, how'd you get to know him? But as soon as the religious leaders toward the last leg of Christ's earthly life began spewing hatred and began starting trouble and rumors, all of a sudden the disciples began to feel hate a little bit. And he just wanted them to know that that is going to be part of the journey. 
Now, as we talk about understanding hate this morning, the first principle is, number one, why the world hates believers. I would say this uh, as we begin. Something about being hated as a follower of Jesus, it is likely that many in this room have not experienced it to a, a great degree. And sometimes that's our fault, and sometimes it is um, simply a matter of personality and culture. What I mean is sometimes we dilute our faith so much so as not to offend anybody that our standing for him is greatly softened. And so rather than being an offense to the world, we blend right in. But this verse is not to say that everyone will be hated to the same degree. It's a lot less likely for us to be hated for our faith in Lake County, Florida, than it would be where many people are fighting for their life for the cause of Christ. I know in an area in the Horn of Africa where my sister has worked for the last 20 years that if you are become a follower of Jesus, your name is put on a death list and you are hunted down by the uh, Muslim extremists in the Somali area. And so maybe you have never been hated anywhere close to that degree, but you can have some minor relation to it. So I, I don't want you to be overimposed with a self-inflicting guilt if you've never, so to speak, had a knife to your throat for your faith. But it is a good question to ask ourselves, are we living the kind of different life Christ wants us to live? Is there a reason on our part where we've, why we've not experienced such hate but nonetheless Christ in effect raises the question okay you're hated why are you hated and I believe as we look at these verses we can find at least three reasons as to why believers are hated and the first one a under number one is because we are different in verse 19 it says the world loves its own I think we've all experienced that when you find someone that has in common something really in common with you. Maybe they root for the same team or they're from the same hometown. Uh, you, you can find instant commonality. But also in the body of Christ, when you find someone that is a fellow believer. The other day, I was at a, a gym where I go to locally, and I saw someone that I was quite sure that was a believer sharing his faith with someone else. And I was just sort of listening right nearby because they were near me. And when they finished the conversation, I went up to the man who did not go to our church. I'd never met him before. And I said, you are a believer, aren't you? And he said, yeah. I said, I want to commend you for sharing your faith with that guy. Way to go. And after that, and I've seen him one other time since then, we've had this amazing connection. Why? Because we're rooting for the same team. We have the same bond. We, we already don't, don't even know each other, but we love each other because of who we belong to. The same is true for the world. In verse 19, it says, if you belong to the world, they would love you as its own. There's that commonality. If you are into things that don't honor the Lord, there's a bonding. That's why some of you, before you knew Christ, you had a strong bond with people that like to do evil things or that like to talk about things that disregarded the living God. There's a bond. There's a love there. And he, he is imploring them, since you don't belong to the world, you're going to feel their angst and their hatred now what should this cause us to do oftentimes it causes us, us not to want to be different and we must not take that route now it's it's also true that this does not mean we should pursue an obnoxious faith where we're 
trying to be alienating and pushing beyond the realms of Scripture just to get just to fulfill this verse. I, I guarantee you this verse can take care of itself. It doesn't need, need us being more rude with our faith in, in order to accomplish this. I've noticed in, in, in me only being in my mid-40s, many of you having many more years than myself, not too many more years, but at least a few more years than myself, have seen an extreme change in our world. A, a very fast change in the way that Christians are perceived. I, I remember hearing uh, Pastor Greg Laurie, a pastor in California, talk about when he gave his life to Christ, everybody wasn't excited about it. He went to his friends, they all laughed at him. He went to his parents and they all thought he had lost his mind. All of his family, except his grandmother, thought he had completely lost it. And, and that was, of course, the late 60s in Southern California. But uh, I heard Ravi Zacharias, the uh, apologist and Christian uh, speaker uh, just this past weekend on the radio and he was interviewed and he was asked um, what do you think is a more hostile environment for American for for Christianity is it uh, college campuses in the United States or is it the Middle East Christians surviving for their lives in the Middle East and he said you know in some ways it feels like college campuses because he speaks at universities campuses all over the world and said last time he was at an ivy league school giving a lecture on the defense of christianity there was threats upon him and he had to have a security guard walk with him because of how opposed people were to the faith and then of course we thought we misread the news four or five weeks ago when we heard that there was a group of four pastors in Houston, Texas, the motherland of all places, that were being subpoenaed by a city attorney, a city attorney for their stance against the biblical sexual ethic, for coming out against homosexuality, and they were going to be subpoenaed in a, in a court of law, and their sermons sort of examined to see if they were giving out hate speech against the mayor of Houston, and we're scratching ourselves, wondering, and we're wiping the sleep out of our eyes, wondering if we have woken up in a different world. As our culture begins to cool against our faith, rather than being filled with rage and anger and lawyering up as fast as we can because someone was looking at us funny or someone took away what we have always said was our right, we should know Jesus warned us about this. He told us about it in advance. And remember, you signed up to be a follower of his no matter what. And one of the reasons that the world hates us is simply because we are out of step with their culture. B, under number one, why does the world hate believers? It also hates believers because of our salvation. It says, as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Once again, Jesus is emphasizing the sovereign and Godward nature of our salvation. I think sometimes haphazardly we use words that describe salvation as our act. It is not necessarily our heart and motive to make it about man, but when we say, I got saved, or I invited Christ into my life, uh, the emphasis is sometimes more on, on us than on Christ. 
It's someone, I repented, and I saw that I was no longer any good, and so I gave my life to Christ. We don't want to downplay the Godward nature of our faith. Jesus, all throughout the book of John, and especially in John chapter 15, has been saying, I'm the one that started this. I chose you out of this world. And then he says, that's why the world hates you. Think about what he's saying. The world hates the concept of free grace. The world would like to earn their way. They would like to pay to, yes, escape from eternal hell. And if there was a a way that we could prove that we could set up payment plans for people to buy salvation, we would have a traffic jam all the way down 27 and 441 of people trying to come in here and purchase salvation. But it doesn't work like that. You can't contribute to your salvation. You have to come to the place where you acknowledge your spiritual poverty. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we don't like to admit that we can't save ourselves. We don't like to admit that another had to come in and pick up a bill that we couldn't pay ourselves. This kind of salvation, I've chosen you out of the world, free grace is something that silences human pride and therefore pushes proud man away. And we talk about the joy of being saved by the mercy and the grace of God and the world snarls at us. Could it be envy? Could it be disdain for the freedom of the grace of God? All we know is that Jesus specifically told us the world hates us because of the way that salvation works and how God has saved us by his grace. We also know another reason why the world hates believers, hates You and I who know Christ is C because of our identification with Christ. In verse 21 it says, They will treat you this way because of my name. Because of my name, the world is treating you a certain way. Have you ever uh, experienced guilt by association? Maybe you were friends with someone growing up and your friend got into some trouble and therefore you were trouble. Maybe the opposite was good as true was good was true as well. You were friends with somebody that did something good or something great, and all of a sudden somebody thought you were good or great. We 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 get association, uh, guilt or blessing, and maybe you've experienced the blessing of being identified with Christ. And someone says, ah, "Like I did at the gym recently, you follow Christ. How wonderful." But oftentimes, there is this guilt by association with Christ. What? You believe in what that old book teaches about this? Get with the modern world! Don't be a follower of that antiquated Jesus with those medieval morals. Get with the modern times and agenda. Don't associate with Jesus because that's old school and out of step. I was reading about how the inventor of the modern umbrella in England in the late 18th century, it was, of course, pouring down rain in London all the time, and people, before the modern umbrella had been invented, they would just cover their heads with whatever they could and walk through the rain if they had to. And here's a man walking around covered 
with something that was rain resistance and rain is falling off of him and people watched him and do you know what their initial reaction was he was jeered at he was (laughs) pelted with stones and people threw dirt at him i don't know if they thought he was acting like he was mr special he was too good for rain or what it was but it was so out of step with how everyone was thinking that there was hatred that that rose up in him and i I guess when umbrella cells took off they Uh, maybe quit hating him as much when everyone began to purchase one. But oftentimes we have a guilt by association and we must stand and be willing to be identified with Christ regardless. Now, if it goes like this, men hate Christians because of Jesus, then the next logical question is, why is it that mankind hates Jesus? Has that ever been a little bit baffling to you? What did he ever do, is what my thinking is. Why the hate for the sinless, perfect, loving Son of God? We understand when people hate certain people. When when someone hates the mean person. When someone hates the immoral person. It's not that we applaud. It's not that we think it's right. But at least we understand. Why is it that this world hates Jesus That's the principle of number two, why the world hates Jesus. There are four reasons in this passage. The first one is A, and that's because of a distaste for the divine. Regardless of what the religious world would have told you in the first century, they hated God. Well, they were all about being identified with God the Father. But in verse 21, they will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Now, the other people weren't around when Jesus was telling this to the disciples. Had he gone public with this statement at this moment, it would have been a riot that would have taken his life out. Right then, probably before the cross, he was telling them that these religious people knew a lot about religion, knew a lot about stuff they'd memorized and twisted from the holy books, knew a lot about bilking people out of their dough from the temple, but there's one thing they missed. They did not know God. And then in verse 23... He says, he who, hates my, he who hates me hates my father as well. Well, if you're a family man and someone doesn't like your spouse, well, you're standing up for your family. You're saying, well, they, they don't like me either then. If someone doesn't like your parents, you're standing with your family. Well, they don't like me then because I'm with them. Jesus is saying, you can't separate me from my heavenly Father because we are one. That's why we believe in the Trinity. There's one God and God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. To hate Jesus, he was saying, is to hate everything that is divine. It's often a debate in certain circles as to whether God exists. And to me, there's no doubt in my mind that one of the reasons that the theory, emphasis on the word theory, that the theory of evolution is so incredibly popular in our day is not because it makes sense. It's not because that everybody really thinks that we all came from some goo, from a preambiotic soup, to the zoo, to you. That's brilliant. That makes a ton of sense. No one is really going to say that there's perfect evidence to talk about a natural cosmic accident for the complexity of us. But you know what that theory does? It takes the divine and goes poof. It evaporates the need for God. It evaporates moral responsibility 
And so we cling to it. Why? Because just like the first century, there's a hatred of all things God. Another reason why the world hated Jesus is be because of his words. In verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. So they, are, they hate Jesus because be because of his words. He spoke to them, and then they saw their guilt. If I hadn't spoken my words to them, they wouldn't have seen their guilt. When he says they would not have been guilty, that's basically another way of saying they would not have sensed their guilt. They wouldn't have been aware of their guilt. It, didn't, it doesn't mean that they literally would not have been accountable before God. But the words that Jesus spoke were piercing. And so you either respond to piercing words with repentance or rebellion. Some responded with repentance, many responded with rebellion. Uh, See, another reason why the world hates Jesus is because of his works. In verse 24, it says, If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my Father. They've hated both me and my father. The point is that my works also, the miracles of Jesus, exposed human sin. The only way you could explain him changing the water and the wine and to healing so many and bringing Lazarus back from the dead is because he was divine. And if he was divine, he was God himself. And if he was God himself, they were accountable to him. And it pushed many away from them. Once again, in verse 24, it showed them that they had sin and they didn't want to deal with it. Also in verse 25, it may sum up, it's a quote from Psalm 35 and from Psalm 69 but it says but this is so this is to fulfill what is written in the law they hated me without reason you know what he's saying basically is d and another reason people hated Jesus was for no good reason you ever seen a little boy or a little girl crying their eyes because somebody pushed them out on the playground and they're weeping and they're crying and you ask well why did he do that to you and they say for no reason he pushed me for no good reason. And Jesus is saying, in essence, you know, the reason I spoke to them, the reason I did these miracles was so they would see their sin and then realize that I am the one who forgives them of their sin. It's really a merciful thing what God did. And so he says, they don't have any good reason as to why they hate me. So this, this morning, as we, as we look at this sermon in conclusion, how then do we respond, number three on your outline, to hate First of all, A is keep in mind the centrality of Christ. Verse 18 says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Is it in your mind that it's to be expected that people would hate you? I I read one time a quote by a hockey player who was a goalie, a famous goalie from Canada. And they said, what's it like to be a goalie in the NHL? And he said, well, how would you like it in your job if every time you did something wrong, a big red light went on and 18,000 people booed? <laughs> That's what happens to a goalie when every, he makes a mistake. Well, we don't like for us to be the center of attention, for everyone to be booing at us. But we have to realize that Jesus said, listen, keep in mind that it's not about you. 
We have a way of making everything about us. They hate me. I'm a nice person. I try to be sweet. I'm a responsible citizen. I can't believe people are hating me. Have you ever thought for a moment, it's not really you that they hate? It's about him. And so keep in mind the centrality of Christ. If you live a Christ-centered life, you're not going to be so touchy about personal insults that may happen to you. It's because of your faith and who you belong to. B, another way to respond to hate is to bring Christ's words to mind. In verse 20, he says, Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. This is a famous saying of Jesus to the disciples some months ago. He had told them this. And that, that word means many things. No servant is greater than his master. It means know your place. But it also means, look, they treated the master poorly. They're about to hang the master to a cross in his innocence. And you, as his servant, you're expecting the Shangri-La Hotel and everyone to love you to death? He's saying, keep my words in mind. If you're remembering all that I've taught you, you will be fine. That needs to be our first response to hate, is to remember the words of Jesus. And also in verse 20, is to be hopeful for spiritual renewal. It says in the middle of verse 20, if they persecuted you, they will persecute you, you also. But if they obeyed my teaching, they will also obey yours. He's trying to say, look, a lot of people are going to reject my teaching. A lot of folks are going to persecute you. But guess what? Some people will obey your teaching. What happens in the midst of hate is we start hating the haters. We start offending everybody else. And Jesus is reminding us, look, some people are going to respond. Have you ever written somebody off just a little too quickly? And we have this tendency to write off people that hate Jesus. And God's saying, you know what? Give them my teaching. Give to them the good news. There's still hope for our country. There's still hope for our, our state. There's still hope for the world. As raucous as it is in opposition to Jesus Christ, there is hope, and we must pray for spiritual renewal. As we consider this powerful passage, there may be some here today, that you're sensing, that you're aware of your sin, just like Jesus told us from his words and his works, you know your need of the living Lord. And as we take a moment and bow together and enter into a time of response, I would like us to reflect on these words and consider what our response to the living God should be. I would like to call upon those who are in Christ today to spend a moment in preparation for the Lord's Supper that we're going to have and ask God to search your heart and trust His forgiveness of any sins of word or deed you might have committed against Him this past week especially. But in light of the message of Christ today, I'd like us to consider what our response would be to him. And in just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation, people being able to come forward and make a decision for Christ. But rather than stand like we often do, we're just going to remain prayerfully seated. Heavenly Father, we'd like to pray that you would burn in our hearts the memories of your word. Thank you for dying for our sins. Thank you for this glorious symbol that we can do in remembrance of you. And this morning... Have your way with us today. Draw people to your truth.
as Stephen begins to sing in just a moment, if you're here today and you'd like to receive Christ in your life, you'd like to talk to someone or pray with someone about what it means to know Jesus, we'd love to do that today. Others are here and you maybe are sensing God's leadership to become part of this church family. You come as the Lord leads, just wherever you are, just make your way forward because we'd love to talk and pray with you today.